Good morning, church. Today's reading from Daniel 4, verses 28 through 37. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. From the words of our Lord. Well, good morning, good morning. Am I on? I'm on, good, good morning. Uh, my name is Mark Young. I serve as the adult ministries pastor here at Desert Breeze. And whether you're joining us online or you're here in the building, we are really, really glad you're with us this weekend. Would you join me for uh, just a few moments as we pray together before we get started? Father, thank you. We appreciate so much uh, these times together. Uh, we're grateful for a place where we can gather and celebrate you, uh, sing praises to you, uh, dive into your word. Uh, Father, I am so thankful that your word remains relevant and vibrant today even though it is from a time long ago in a place far away with people that are in many ways different from us, but as we see, very similar as well. And thank you that we can go into your word and, and understand you better, draw closer to you, walk with you more faithfully. And so may our time together this morning, Father, be rich and meaningful, impactful. Maybe uh, leave this place ready to serve you more faithfully in the weeks to come. Thank you, Jesus, so much. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. There is a story that I heard multiple times growing up that involved a group of neighborhood kids 
who decided one day they were going to form a club. Now, this is a Christian story, so club, not gang. Keep that in mind. It's a club, a neighborhood club. And the kids got together, and, and as most people do when they start to form a club, they begin to haggle over the rules or what are going to be the regulations? Will we collect dues? What types of things will we do with this club? And they finally, after several hours of arguing and discussing and thinking, they came up with three rules. And here are the three rules for their neighborhood club. Rule number one, nobody acts big. Nobody acts big. Rule number two, nobody acts small. Nobody acts small. And the most important of all, rule number three, everybody acts medium. Everybody acts medium. A lot of wisdom in this story, right? And I feel pretty confident that it is a fictitious story because no kids are this sensitive and thoughtful. <laughs> They're not going to get together and come up with these three rules. And yet the story resonates with us in some ways. Uh, we see the value in those three rules that they created because down deep inside, we long for this, don't we? we? We wish life was like this. We know too many people who act big a lot of the times. We also know too many people that tend to act small. We wish everyone would act medium. We, this resonates with us. We desire this kind of life. I think another reason why it, it, it means something to us is we also know that it's extremely difficult to achieve this that it's virtually impossible to find a place where everyone is acting medium like we want them to. And I think that's because whether it is acting big or acting small, at the root of both of those extremes is one single thing that all of us struggle with, and that's pride. Pride. Pride causes us to act big in certain occasions, and pride can actually cause us to act small in certain occasions. So how do we achieve medium? Is it even achievable in this life? That's where we're going to go for a few minutes this morning. Uh, we've been in the book of Daniel the last few weeks, and the book of Daniel is an extremely interesting piece of Old Testament literature. Uh, it takes place about 500 to 600 years before the time of Jesus in a region of the world at that time called Babylon, it's modern-day Iraq. And we've really been introduced to four young men that have acted amazingly in this really, really difficult situation. Again, imagine if you have been removed from your home and taken into exile hundreds of miles away and thrust into a brand new culture that is nothing like the culture you came from. And these four men, we know them as Daniel, and then the other three we know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, have shown us in these first few chapters that they didn't assimilate to the Babylonian culture and just adopt everything about it and lose what they had in their faith in God. They also didn't try to hide from culture. They didn't create a holy huddle of just the four of them. But instead, what I've loved so much about these four men is that they attempted to redeem culture. They willingly adopted the ways of Babylon. They learned their language. In fact, all four of them rose to great prominence within the, the structure of the Babylonian empire. 
and yet they also would not compromise their faith in the one true God. So as they redeem the culture, attempt to live for God, yet not assimilate completely to the culture, we've just been amazed at what they've walked through. And today we come to Daniel chapter 4, which really isn't much about these four individuals. Daniel gets some brief mention, but this chapter is all about King Nebuchadnezzar. And as we're going to see, he's going to describe to us his rise and his fall because of his pride. But at the end of the chapter, we're going to see redemption for Nebuchadnezzar. So here we are. We know full well that our pride is huge. The human struggle with pride has been on display since the first chapters of Genesis. You just walk casually through Scripture and you see pride pop up again and again and again. Uh, John, the apostle, in his first letter, 1 John, he mentions three things that all of us struggle with, and the third one he mentions is the pride of life. It's one of the ways that Satan tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness by attacking his human pride. And in Daniel chapter 4, we're going to see King Nebuchadnezzar experience what many of us have also learned, that when you live a life without humility, ultimately that leads to humiliation. A life without humility leads to humiliation. And so what we want to try to do this morning is, is determine through this text and a few other places in the New Testament, how can we avoid the poison of pride? And how can we, as Micah says in his uh, prophetic book, chapter 6, verse 8, how can we walk humbly with our God? Now, before we jump into the text, I think we need to clarify something because when you say the word pride in our American context, it actually can mean two different things, and so we want to distinguish which pride we're really thinking about this morning. Uh, there is a type of pride that I'm going to label as a healthy pride, and then there's another one that is the poisonous side of pride. A, a healthy pride would be the kind of pride where really what you're doing is you are either rejoicing or celebrating or uplifting something that God has done. Perhaps He's used someone's talents or abilities uh, something that they've worked hard to achieve. It may be within yourself, but more often it's within someone else. And, and you're proud of that. Uh, you could be proud of your kids' achievements. You could be proud that you worked hard and received a promotion at work. Uh, I'm extremely proud of three individuals that attend Desert Breeze. Last Saturday, uh, our student ministries pastor, Pastor Jace Meyer, uh, along with two other guys, John Plyley and Tyler Stringer, they participated in a sprint triathlon. I don't like either of those words. <laughs> sprint and triathlon, and then they pushed them together. And it's, they, they say, well, it's just a shorter version of a triathlon. It's still a triathlon. And these three guys not only participated, they lived to tell about it, and they should be proud. I'm proud of you. I'm proud that you did it and not me. <laughs> but I'm very proud of them, and they should be proud of that. That's a great accomplishment. Uh, perhaps you're proud of the fact that every time your family gets together, you make it through a whole meal, and you don't argue with your crazy uncle about politics. That is a huge accomplishment. You should be proud of that, because we all have that crazy uncle. Perhaps someone in the audience is the crazy uncle. 
And so this is a, a type of pride where really, guys, what we're saying is I am proud of something that you've achieved or maybe I've achieved that not everyone achieves. It could be thought of as we're saying I'm better than you at something or you're better than me at something, but in nowhere are we downgrading one person and elevating the other. We're just celebrating the fact that you accomplished something. There's a reason why they don't ask me to lead worship here. Those up here on a weekly basis are far superior. I am proud of their musical achievements. In fact, I tell them so all the time. Uh, if you ever get here before the nine o'clock service, come in early and listen to them warm up. It's almost as good as the actual worship experience. I'm proud of them that they are using their talents to glorify God. I'm not trying to take their spot because that's the best way to diminish this church down to a handful. I don't even think my family would come at some point. So that's one type of pride, and that's, I think, acceptable when it's uh, achieved in the way we've just described. But the poisonous side of pride is different. The poisonous side of pride is really a preoccupation with yourself, often then leading to a devaluation of others. If I'm going to lift myself up, someone has to be shoved down. And in this type of pride, we are more concerned about achieving some kind of status at the expense of others. And so, I feel entitled. I feel valued in and of myself. I don't really care if you suffer in the process. If the first pride was, I may be better than you at something, the second kind of pride is really just, I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I have more value than you. I must have the spotlight at the expense of you being pushed to the side. I think all of us have been hurt by this kind of poisonous pride. And if we were honest, we have hurt people through our arrogance, through our stubbornness, through our poisonous pride. That is the kind of pride we're going to look at this morning in Daniel chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles with you, whether you have an old school hard copy or you've got an electronic version, please turn to Daniel chapter 4. Let me set up the chapter for you a little bit. We're going to really focus mostly on the verses that Julia read for us just a few moments ago. Uh, but just the chapter in of itself is a, an extremely unique chapter in the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel 4 is written by King Nebuchadnezzar. It is either a letter or a royal transcript that Nebuchadnezzar wrote detailing the events that we're about to see unfold. Now, just think about that for a moment. There is a pagan king in a foreign country who is one of the authors of Scripture. We tend to think of the spiritual giants as being the authors of Scripture, and yet, not necessarily Nebuchadnezzar sat down and said, I'm going to write a chapter for you, Daniel. But instead, Daniel probably got a, a hold of this material, and yet God in his supernatural providence decided that this was something that we needed to have for the rest of history. And so a wicked pagan king of Babylon is the author of this chapter we're going to read today. I find that fascinating. You might recall a couple of weeks ago, we were in Daniel chapter 2, and we saw that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Uh, this chapter also includes one of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. The difference would be that in chapter 2, 
Nebuchadnezzar required not just the interpretation of the dream, but the person had to also tell him the dream. In chapter 4, we're going to see that this dream is so powerful and freaks Nebuchadnezzar out to the point where he's willing to share the dream. He's just looking for any kind of interpretation. This chapter is going to show us the rise, the fall, and the restoration of Nebuchadnezzar. So let me share with you the first parts of the passage, and then we'll jump to the the end of the the chapter. Uh, Daniel 4 begins this way. Uh, This is how we know it's Nebuchadnezzar who's writing. Uh, Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. And then he launches into a description of this incredible dream that he had. In this dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees a massive tree. He describes it as one in which the the branches and leaves go all the way into the heavens. The branches spread out over the entire known world. Fruit that hangs from this tree is the most delicious fruit ever. Animals graze underneath this tree. It's so majestic. And then a watcher, most likely an angel, is seen coming down from heaven and chopping the tree off right above the ground. A band is put around the tree made of iron and bronze, and the watcher describes why he's doing this. Then something really interesting happens as Nebuchadnezzar is telling his dream. He moves from talking about a tree to talking about a man. Look at verse 15 if you want to. In the middle of verse 15, describing an inanimate object, a tree, and then halfway through the verse, the pronoun shifts, and it's a man who is being described. And after the chopping down of the tree, this man is said to go from human to beast, begins to graze the area, eating grass like an ox or perhaps a cow. And and the dream Nebuchadnezzar is told that the man who is living like a beast will live this way for seven years. But then, restoration at the end. You see, notice the tree is chopped down, but the roots are not taken out. The potential for growth does exist. Now, you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar is a little concerned about this dream, so the first thing he does is he goes to his wise guys, the astrologers and the magicians and uh, the Chaldeans, and he asks them, would you interpret this dream? And they do not, much like in chapter 2. Then Nebuchadnezzar says, why don't I go to the dream interpreter on campus? Let's go to Daniel. And he explains the dream to Daniel, and Daniel's first reaction is, I don't know if you want to know what this is about. Nebuchadnezzar, this dream is about you. And in verse 27, let's take a look at that verse. This is how Daniel finishes his description of the interpretation of this dream. Daniel 4.27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity." This dream that Nebuchadnezzar has just received is approximately 20 to 30 years after the fiery furnace episode we saw last week in chapter 3. 
and maybe as much as 50 years since the beginning of Daniel in chapter 1. So in 40 or 50 years period of time, Nebuchadnezzar has seen on at least three occasions the Most High God in action. He's watched as Daniel and his three friends chose to refuse the king's food and drink, and they were healthier as a result. He's been in the presence of Daniel as Daniel interpreted a massive dream, and he has seen these three other men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, saved out of a fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar knows better, and yet this dream reminds him of who the Most High God really is. So, the the wishful thinking in us says, okay, maybe Nebuchadnezzar figures it out. This dream was so spooky, maybe this had an impact on him. Look at verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months, one year later. One year after the dream, Nebuchadnezzar is walking around his palace, observing all that he has built, all that is under his kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar begins to spout the greatness of him as a result of all the things that he sees around him. What we're seeing in these first couple verses here, especially verses 28 through 30, is the root of pride. This is where all of our pride comes from, everyone. And it's very simply put, the root of our pride is the fact that we often have a misunderstood identity. We have a misunderstood identity. Nebuchadnezzar's first mistake is the same as our first mistake many times, and that is he believes something about himself that isn't true. He buys into a false narrative about himself. He believes that what God has actually accomplished for him is really, he thinks, what he has accomplished himself. And this is how pride gets us. This is how pride worms its way into our hearts. It helps us find a distorted view of ourselves that is opposite of how God actually created us to be. One way uh, I think of it at times is I find pride to be very sneaky. I find pride to be very sneaky. Pride is sneaky. Look at all the different ways that pride can show up in our hearts And on the outside, it doesn't really seem like it may be a a result of pride, but when we dig down to the roots, we see these things in us all the time. There is a confidence that some people have that is warranted, but then an overconfidence that people can have that really is rooted in pride. Intelligence, there's nothing wrong with being intelligent, but at times, if you have intelligence, you can use it to your advantage. Anybody have someone in their life that will refer to them as Mr. or Mrs. Actually? Conversation is happening, and they are always the ones who step into that conversation and say, well, actually, well, actually, and then they impart some wisdom upon you that wasn't known by anybody else in the group, and they feel like they are doing you a service by constantly correcting or changing whatever you're thinking. That's an intelligence that begins to move in the direction of pride. There's self-righteousness. Some of us really struggle with being sin police. We just really love a good beat down of someone because of the sin that they're committing, because we don't have that problem. There's entitlement, defensiveness, the, uh, the perfectionism. This is one big one for me. 
Uh, the idea of everything must be exactly right. I don't want to make any mistakes. Redo and start all over. That perfectionism really is rooted in our pride. We don't want to be seen as someone who is a failure. The next one, sarcasm. Now, uh, if you've spent any time with me, you've probably learned that I come from a long, illustrious line of sarcastic people. I mean, it's a spiritual gift for me. <laughs> and oftentimes, it's to create a joke, to find a way to be funny, but almost always it's at, it's at the expense of somebody. And sarcasm, rooted inside my heart, really is a pride issue, something that I want to hold on to and expose to the world. Struggle to apologize, argumentative, unable to admit weakness, unable to seek advice. I don't need help with any of this. Uh, I may quietly Google something, but I won't let you know because I have to figure it out myself. Here's one that I found interesting. Uh, overly cautious, uh, unwilling to try something new because more likely you will fail if it's the first time you've tried something. So I just don't try it at all. I won't walk down that road because what if I fail? then I'm a failure. These kinds of things oftentimes uh, uh, approach themselves upon you as, I'm not arrogant, you're just always wrong. <laughs> and so we struggle with these things. I don't know if you struggle with any of these, maybe one or two of them on the list. Maybe you're like me and you say, wow, that list right there, I call that Tuesday. <laughs> that's, that's me, I, I, I click those off like a to-do list every day. When we emphasize these issues in our life, we are either working hard to act big or we're trying to avoid acting small. And the reason why we struggle with this, everyone, is that we are caught in a tension in this world that really won't be resolved in this life. We're trying to manage attention. We live in a tension between two extremes. We live in tension between the glory of being made in God's image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We are made in God's image. That is a beautiful thought. That is so wonderful to know that. But we also know for a fact the reality that we are sinful, fallen, and broken. These two extremes are both true in our lives, and when we get imbalanced with them, we move towards acting big or we move towards acting small. I am made in the image of God. Humans, we are the most valuable thing God ever created. And if you let that run too far, you begin to think of yourself not as in the image of God, but actually God. And we begin to act big. We also can overemphasize the fact that we're sinful, fallen, and broken, and we need to recognize that, we need to understand that in our lives, but if I go too deep with that, and I delve deep that that's all I am, now I'm acting small. And we're pursuing a balance, we're trying to let the Holy Spirit, if you're a Jesus follower, help you see that both of those can be true at the same time. And that I want to live as the being that God created to both represent him and be like him on this planet, and yet recognize that it is not me. I am more loved and more sinful than I probably will ever know. And I need to try to figure a way to, to hold those in balance. Nebuchadnezzar is not holding those things in balance. 
And that's why, because of his misunderstood identity, he's got pride rooted within him that's going to finally expose him for who he really is. The next section that we see in this passage is as Nebuchadnezzar is spouting wisdom about himself and declaring all the good things that he has done, we see next in verses 31 through 33, we see the result of pride. What happens when this pride is not dealt with, when this pride goes unchecked? The result of pride is inevitable fall. There is an inevitable fall waiting for those who cannot or choose not to work through their pride. Look at verse 31. It's a fascinating how this, this concept is put together. Daniel 4.31, while the words were still in the king's mouth. I imagine like a cartoon where you see little words coming out of his mouth as he's saying these things about himself. And as the final words are trickling out of his mouth, a voice from heaven tells him, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And what was predicted in the dream becomes a reality in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He goes from human to beast in an instant. Now, what is really happening here? Uh, for some of you, you see this man becomes beast. He becomes like an ox or a cow. And some of you look at that and you say, wow, this is a very moving piece of Scripture. <laughs> Others of you say, this is utterly ridiculous. And yes, I'm going to milk that joke in every single service this weekend. There's never a, a lack of cow puns out there, and that's no bull. Moving on. <laughs> what really happened here, uh, they've done some research on this. Uh, there actually have been a few people throughout history who have ex uh, exhibited these symptoms. Uh, it's referred to as boanthropy, if you're interested. It's a psychological disorder where an individual suffers in the sense that they believe that they are a, a farm animal, like a cow or an ox. And uh, there actually was even a few years ago a man living over in the UK who suffered this. In the morning, his family would wake him up and they would walk him out to their yard and he would graze all day in their yard. And then they'd bring him back in at night and the psychologists and the counselors were stumped as to why he was behaving this way. Um, I'm surprised a new diet didn't come out of it. You know, the grass, keto diet, something that we could lose 20 pounds instantly. Um, what we see from Nebuchadnezzar here are, are some characteristics of pride that pushed him in this direction. Uh, some things that Nebuchadnezzar demonstrates that as a result, God said, I have to get your attention. I'm going to do what I promised through your dream 12 months prior. So the lack of humility that leads to Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation really comes from a couple ways. First of all, pride often causes us to be very self-focused. It's all about me. I am looking in and focusing on me in every situation. You could almost say that Nebuchadnezzar has an eye disease in this passage. Not an eye disease, but capital I disease. The disease of me. Again, go back and look whereas he was talking about his, his kingdom. It was I, me, my. There is a self-focus in Nebuchadnezzar's pride that I think probably we struggle with sometimes too. There's definitely self-deception. Nebuchadnezzar, again, is believing a false narrative. He has been deceived, or he has deceived himself, really, into thinking 
that somehow this is all because of him. That also leads to a lack of self-awareness. Lack of self-awareness. So he has self-focus, self-deception, and a lack of self-awareness. He literally becomes like an animal. Now, I want to help you kind of visualize this a little bit, and so let me set something up for you, and then we're going to put something on the screen for you to see that I think uh, epitomizes these three areas of pride. I, uh, I really love uh, the game of basketball. I've loved the game of basketball since I was in third grade. Um, started playing through elementary, junior high. I went to a small Christian high school, so I was able to play. Uh, just for some reason, I quit growing about fifth grade and never really grew again until maybe a little bit sophomore and junior year. And I've asked God multiple times, why would you take a love for the game of basketball and put it in the body of a hobbit? <laughs> why didn't you like give me some desire for maybe being a horse jockey? They're kind of small. You know? But basketball's always been my love. Uh, have, have enjoyed it so much that I've played it until I couldn't play anymore. I've coached a little bit. It's just a great joy for me. Basketball can often be a, a great exposure of pride. And there's a, a meme that's out there, and if you have no idea what a meme is, find someone under the age of 30 after the service and ask them. Um, there's a meme or a little video clip that I think epitomizes this idea of pride. Uh, he's an NBA player by the name of Nick Young. Uh, his nickname is Swaggy P, so you already know where this is going. And there's one instance where uh, Nick Young pulls up at the top of the key area, actually past that three-point line area, and he lets a three-pointer fly, and in his turn to celebrate, doesn't watch the ball go all the way through the hoop. Here's what this looks like. A turn of celebration as the ball rims out and goes off to the side. Self-focus, self-deception, lack of self-awareness. That's the epitome of pride. In fact, uh, Andy Stanley, who's a pastor and author uh, out of the Atlanta area, he put it this way, pride closes me in and crowds others out. Pride closes me in and crowds others out. Nebuchadnezzar, notice, is all alone when he is claiming these things, and he probably spent a lot of alone time those seven years behaving like an animal. In fact, some people have wondered if uh, Nebuchadnezzar was uh, perhaps placed in one of his many secret gardens. Some have suggested maybe Daniel took care of him during these seven years. What I find fascinating is that historians and archaeologists have found a seven-year gap of time in the records dedicated to King Nebuchadnezzar. There's a seven-year gap where nothing is said or written about Nebuchadnezzar that historians and archaeologists have found so far. Interesting. Because if Nebuchadnezzar is like the emperors that we see during this time period, they do nothing but talk about themselves all the time and write about themselves all the time, and yet there's a seven-year gap fascinating. You know, if the story ended here, I think we'd all be okay with it. He kind of got what he deserved. Right? Yes, Nebuchadnezzar should act like an animal for the rest of his existence, but that's not how God works. God loves us too much to leave us in our pride. 
Restoration is always in God's agenda. And we see that here in these last few verses of chapter 4. We see the remedy of pride, which is authentic humiliation. Authentic humiliation. Nebuchadnezzar makes a statement in verse 34 that in many ways is the epicenter of what we're talking about this morning. In verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar writes this, at the end of the days, at the end of the seven periods of time, most likely seven years, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, here it is, folks, lifted my eyes to heaven. Lifted my eyes to heaven. Lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the most high. Good job, Nebuchadnezzar. That's a good pattern to follow. I lift my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me, and the first thing he did was praise and bless the Most High. This authentic humility is what we want to try to capture. Where pride was self-focused, humility, and we can see it here in Nebuchadnezzar's life in this moment, humility is self-forgetfulness. Not self-focus, but self-forgetfulness. I focus on looking up. Maybe you've heard it said this way, a very common phrase, it's mostly attributed to C.S. Lewis, in which humility isn't really thinking of yourself less, it's just thinking less of yourself. Self-forgetfulness, not self devaluation. I'm not minimizing myself. I'm not acting small. I'm just not focused on myself. Found a great quote, and I will read it to you. It's a little long, but it's just so meaty. It's so packed full of great wisdom. Uh, Timothy Keller, uh, retired pastor out of the New York area, uh, wrote in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, and he was writing about some things that C.S. Lewis said in his book, Mere Christianity. So Timothy Keller is talking about C.S. Lewis. For this spiritual fanboy, that is really, really something. I mean, those two guys are high on my list of, of theologians that I value, and one is quoting the other, so I just wanted to share it with you. Listen to how Timothy Keller talks about this idea of self-forgetfulness. Dr. Keller says this, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, makes a brilliant observation about, he calls it gospel humility. Gospel humility, at the very end of his chapter on pride. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is, here it is, how much they seemed to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, it is thinking of myself less. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. So really, the best way to think of humility, 
is to say humility is thinking rightly about myself. Acting medium, not too high, not too low. Understanding who I am in Jesus, recognizing what's true about me, and focusing on others. We want to get practical for these last couple minutes together. And so, uh, I want to reference two passages that really help bring together what this authentic humility looks like. How do we do this? It's not something as simple as I wake up tomorrow and go, I'm going to be humble today. It just doesn't really work that way. It, it requires uh, more nuanced than that. It isn't just a thing to check off your list. And one of the best places to see authentic humility is mirrored by, of course, who else? Jesus, in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. In that passage, which is considered the most incredible blueprint for humility, maybe in the entire Scriptures, the Apostle Paul is walking the Philippian house church members through this idea of how do we not be selfish with one another? How do we find ways to live together in harmony? And Paul walks through who Jesus is and what he has done and describes his humility in an extremely beautiful way. Let me read a few of the uh, the verses from this passage to you. Philippians 2, I'll start at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We can see three things in this passage that Jesus demonstrates that helps us maybe grab and put some handles on this idea of what it means to be authentically humble. The first thing we see about Jesus is that he was very secure in his identity. He was very secure in his identity. In verse uh, 5, he says, have this same mindset that Christ Jesus has, who wasn't worried about losing his identity, who thought he was uh, um, among himself the form of God, but he didn't count equality with God something that needed to be grasped or held on to. Jesus has this amazing security that he was not afraid of, by humbling himself, he was going to somehow become forgotten, shoved aside, He was so secure in who he was. You and I can have that same security if we are followers of Jesus. We know who we are and we know whose we are. And so we don't need to worry about losing our identity if faced with an opportunity to show humility. Second thing Jesus does in this passage is he was willing to lower his position. He willingly went from God to man. That's a pretty significant step down. And his willingness to do this and to take on the form of a servant, to take on human flesh, he chose to put the glory of the Father and the salvation of humanity ahead of his own personal glory. And then the third thing Jesus does here is he's obedient regardless of the consequences. Obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. A great question to ask ourselves is, Whatever we need to do to show humility, is it as difficult as dying on the cross? Probably most times the answer will be no. And so Jesus, who was always right and was completely wronged, constantly chose humility. 
And so we as Jesus followers should do the same. Last thing I want to point you to is a passage uh, written by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. The second half of that verse, Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Clothe yourselves. Literally, that means to tie around yourself. And the image that Peter is creating there for us is the image of a servant's apron. To tie around oneself, to put on the apron of humility. The posture of gospel-centered humility is one of where I approach everyone like a servant. I was talking about this with Luke Connor about a week or two ago, and he mentioned how, really, when you work in the service industry, especially the food industry, it perhaps may be one of the most maligned, disregarded, disrespected professions out there. For those of you who work in this kind of industry, I applaud you for putting up with the rest of us all the time. And then, Caleb Van Lue earlier this week said, oh, and also think about it, that if you're working in this capacity, think of all the junk that ends up on your apron by the end of your shift. That's humility. Putting up with people, humbly serving them, not spitting in their food when they give you a hard time, but willingly serving at every moment, even when all the junk of life gets thrown upon you. Imagine what it would be like if we clothed ourselves in humility, if we wore the apron of humility. Imagine what your family would be like, what your workplace would be like, what Desert Breeze would be like, what your life group would be like. Students, what would happen if you went home today and said to your parents, how can I help? After the stroke that would occur, and the thought process of what do they really want, imagine what would happen. Husbands, imagine what would happen if you literally put on the apron of humility, but also put on the apron of humility and how you approach to your spouse. Again, after the stroke or heart attack happens and you lift them off the ground. Imagine if at your work or at school, instead of saying that's not my problem, you actually stepped in and you helped whatever the problem was. This is the kind of apron of humility that Christ demonstrated to us. And if we are followers of him and we see this is where value in life occurs, this is where we thrive in life, is to wrap ourselves with the apron of humility. So I want to leave us with one question to take away for the rest of our time. Think about this maybe throughout the week. Come very practical with this. If I don't want to act big and I don't want to act small, I want to act medium with the people around me. How can I serve others the way Jesus served me? How can I humbly serve others the way Jesus humbly served you and me? Let me pray for us. Father, this is an extremely, extremely powerful passage and it'd be easier, easy for us to say, well, that's Nebuchadnezzar, that's not me. I don't have that problem. And yet I think if we're really honest, all of us struggle with this at times. And so 
would you help us, Jesus, just to be so consumed with you, so in love with you, so drawn to you, that the humility that you demonstrated when you were here on earth would just seep into our pores and become a practical part of who we are, that the visual image of an apron of humility would be the way we approach our relationships, the way we approach friends, family, neighbors, strangers, all for your honor and glory, Jesus, all for your honor and glory. Thank you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being here this, uh, this morning. Uh, if you are interested in taking part in baptism in a few weeks, the class will be right over here to my left, your right. And if you want someone to pray with you or just to ask some questions, I'll be up front. I'll take the apron off because that's weird talking. With me. And they'll ask me for, you know, a quiche or something. Um, and other leaders will be up here as well. So thank you so much. Have a great rest of your Sunday and, and a good week. Thanks.